Hello everyone and welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today we're going to be talking about power again. This is part four of the series. We're going to be focusing in today a little more on top-down power and how that is played out through the different types of systems, uh, political, economic, and religious. Um, and to get a little bit of a sense of this, I want to give kind of an overall view of some of the uh, ways that power has played out and some of the uh, major thinkers that people often cite when they're talking about power, uh, at least in the Western traditions. Um, in Plato, we start early on having someone try to plan out the ideal society. We talked about this a little bit in Plato's Republic when we talked about it. Um, he was trying to come up with a society that was perfectly just in order to have to be able to have a just man. His idea was you couldn't have a just man until you first have a just system to put that person under. Now, the system that Plato set up in the Republic is differs in many areas from a lot of the things that were already there, but in a lot of ways it was also the same. It was very much a system built on a hierarchy, where you definitely had a top and then the different tiers. Now, up to Plato's time, there had been... Uh, political systems where you had the king and the uh, aristocracy and then the people and slaves on the bottom. And you also had uh, Athens, which is where he was living when he was writing this. And Athens was a democracy. Now, it isn't a democracy in that everybody in Athens gets to vote. It was still very selective who in Athens could vote. Uh, it was only basically property-owning free males who could vote. So with with the democracy of Athens, it's not really a democracy where everyone gets a vote. It's, it's very much set up that the top gets together and makes all of the decisions together. Now in Plato's attempt to uh, counter this and make something better, uh, he creates his republic. And at the top of his pyramid in the republic is a group called the Philosopher Kings. Um, he thought that the people who should rule society should be the wisest of people, but all of the decisions should be made within that group. And so you still have this kind of hierarchy, even though he sets it up as, well, these are the smartest people, they will make the best decisions. Now, he did do some things that would limit these people. Uh, one of the things that he did was in his system, the people in power at the top were not allowed to own anything. Everything they had was held in common. Uh, they weren't even allowed to have rights to their own children. So they were isolated in his mind from that abuse of power, where often with power as he had seen and that had been shown over and over again in history, those at the top of the power pyramid accumulate most of the wealth and hoard it. So he wanted to avoid that pitfall. But again, he still puts a very specific group in power. And power, as it plays out, uh, as we've talked about in the other lectures, uh, always goes in the same direction. It doesn't matter how good the intentions are. It doesn't matter how well set up the system is. Eventually, the goal of power is to stay there. And in order to stay there, you have to keep increasing your own power while pushing down everyone underneath you. Now the next jump I want to make jumps up quite a bit of time 
uh, to Machiavelli in the 16th century, uh, 1513, he uh, writes the uh, book The Prince. And The Prince is Machiavelli's uh, political treatise on how to basically get power, keep power, and establish order. And this method that he comes up with is very brutal and ruthless. Um, and, and basically it puts it to the point where power and stability uh, is the only thing that matters. It doesn't matter what the means are as long as you get to the end of stability and uh, maintaining the society as an orderly system. A uh, little later you get another writer who comes along, a little over uh, 140 years, <clears throat> you have Thomas Hobbes who writes the Leviathan. And the Leviathan is still something that uh, people in power uh, and people who will uh, apologize for the systems of power being top-down will often point to as being the reason we have to have these top-down systems. In Hobbes's Leviathan, uh, there's a famous quote that uh, in the state of nature, without any government, life would be brutal, nasty, and short. So his idea that everyone picks up on is if you don't have someone in charge, it degenerates into everyone killing everyone else, everyone stealing from everyone else. And this has been the justification that has basically been used by every system ever since then, whether it's a monarchy, whether it's a uh, republic system like the United States has, whether it's fascism, whether it's communism, whether it's socialism, there's always this idea that if you do not have this powerful group at the top, that everyone else will um, just resort to their baser instincts and destroy society. Now the problem with this, and this Leviathan that he creates, is if he, if, if the, is the truth, if humans are prone to be this type of creature who are just stingy and will kill and rape and murder and rob uh, anytime they can just to get away with this because this is what humans are, uh, how much sense does it make to put then in charge of this Leviathan, in charge of this monster of the state, a small group of people? Because if they're people, they are then prone to the same weaknesses, the same uh, abuses of power that you have if there were no government whatsoever. Except now you have a group of people who are able to do this without any repercussions. They're able to murder and steal and exploit and enslave, uh, and there's really nothing anyone else can do about it. You know, and you see this over and over again with any system where a small group of people gets all of the power. They will... Uh, invariably, whether they're invariably, whether they are a religious group, a political group, or an economic group, or worse, a combination of the two or all three, they will abuse that power more and more. They will take more and more for themselves. <clears throat> when you look at uh, the communist countries, China, uh, the Soviet Union, uh, North Korea, Cuba, basically you have this same thing going on. You know, even though there's supposed to be a 
distribution of wealth for everyone, the distribution of power is very limited to a few group of to a few people. In most cases, to one person at the top and the party underneath that person. And in those cases, it works out over and over again that when you looked at the society of Russia, of China, of North Korea, that the top, the elite, led very luxurious lifestyles, while everyone underneath them lived a life of barely having enough to survive. Uh, these systems also tend to become uh, censoring uh, systems. They tend not to allow anyone to have ideas or put forward ideas that go contrary to what they believe. Um, and this even goes back all the way to Plato. You know, one of the things that Plato says in the Republic is that you need to censor the poets because the poets would write things about the gods that showed the gods being indecisive. <clears throat> and he felt that type of thing would be corrosive to society and corrosive to those in power. So in any of the systems, the more power is concentrated, the more you're going to see censorship and repression of the people. Now, people like to point to the democracies of the world and say, well, we've kind of avoided this problem. But if you look at the way all of the democracies were set up, starting with uh, the United States, they are not set up to be equal. There was never the intention, even though the wording, all men are created equal, this was never the way the government was set up to be. It was set up to be a system where the people were given the ability to vote, but they would never be able to give the ability, given the ability to vote to the extent where they could take power and wealth away from the people who had it. So there were these protections put in to make sure that the majority didn't overrun the wealthy and powerful minority. You know, if you look at systems like the Electoral College, you know, this is specifically put in place in case there's a popular vote and the people pick someone who is not going to take the interests of the wealthy in, in, in hand and in heart. And the Electoral College then has the ability to put someone else in that place. Um, the Electoral College is not under the obligation and hasn't been since the beginning to necessarily put the people in who the people vote for. They have always had the ability to put someone else in if the people, in their words, make a mistake. Uh, so in other words, there were balances put in against the power of the people. Also, the two-party system works as a check against this. When you have two parties that are pretty closely matched, they gridlock. And this means that they will only ever be able to make small changes within the system. They will never be able to do reforms that can actually change things for the majority of people, that can move the whole society in a different direction, because that was never intended. The intention was to give some freedom, some ability to choose, but still protect and preserve the power of the wealthy and the wealth of the wealthy. Now the uh, capitalists and the ones who created the uh, democracies sort of took these ideas from the aristocracy, uh, especially the European aristocracies. You know, in the aristocracies in Europe, 
the feudal system, which came before capitalism and before colonialism, uh, all of the power was really concentrated in the king um, to give out land. And in those time periods, the basis of wealth was land. If you owned lots of productive land, you would be wealthy. You would have lots of products that could be produced on your land, produce a surplus, and keep increasing your wealth. <clears throat> now, one of the things that the aristocrats saw early on was that they couldn't allow their vast estates to become smaller and smaller. So fairly early, they, they started passing rules that only <clears throat> the oldest son, only the firstborn son, could inherit the estate. Um, you, if you had 12 sons and you had a large estate, if all of them inherited part, now you have 12 smaller estates. And if all of them have some several sons, these estates would keep getting smaller and smaller. And so in order to keep that from happening, this was something that the aristocracy put in in order to protect the fact that they were always going to be the wealthiest, wealthiest class. <clears throat> so you have the second, third, fourth, fifth-born sons uh, inheriting nothing, getting no property, and those sons had to go into either the church or the military. Those were pretty much the only two options if you weren't the first-born son. Um, daughters would be given a dowry and married off to someone, usually someone of equal or better station because the aristocracy tried to form alliances that way. If you had a daughter and you're one of the wealthiest people in the country, you want your daughter to marry the son of one of the other wealthiest people in the country. So you're creating these common um, bonds, these common uh, connections that help increase your wealth and increase your standing in the society. So all of these are top-down systems, and all of them, if you look at them, have the same goals in mind, and that is preserving the wealth and power of those at the top. Um, this is something that, as I said, doesn't matter what the type of system is. It doesn't matter what the intentions are of creating that system. They all eventually go down that same road where you have a larger and larger concentration of the wealth in fewer and fewer hands. This is something we can see very much happening in the world today. Uh, the top three or four people have as much wealth as the bottom half of the entire planet. So you have a few people who have as much wealth as you know, 3.5 billion people. Uh, in other words, you get these huge disparities. And because they have this wealth and because they have these systems in place that are guaranteed to protect this wealth, um, they, can, they can feel uh, comforted in knowing that nothing major will ever happen. You know, if you look at the... Uh, people in the cabinets of the presidents, for example, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, makes no difference. The cabinets are made up by people generally from the same corporations, the same large banks, the same large uh, agribusinesses, um, and this is deliberate. This is done so that the wealthy can have people in there that can 
be hands on with making sure their wealth doesn't go away. Okay, I'm going to break off for there for now. Uh, I have uh, many more lectures planned on this, so we will be talking about this more in the future. I also have a lot more lectures on literature and in writing in general. I hope all of you are doing well. I hope all of you are staying safe, and I will talk to you all soon.